Hello. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is Weird Together, where we talk about the latest and greatest in independent horror. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Weird Together is part of the Ghost Story Guys family, which also includes the podcast Mysteries and Monsters, Luke Lore, and Transmissions from the Void. Yes, sir. Available on podcast platforms everywhere. Joseph. It has been a little while. It has. I miss you, dude. I miss you too. Always. <laughs> I've been good. You know, I'm having a good semester. Uh, you know, decent week. Spring break's coming up. Overall, no real complaints. Good stuff. Well, it has been, as you pointed out to me before we went to air, it has been a year since we started Weird Together. Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! And I thought, since it's been a year, and since really the show has evolved because this started as one thing and has become something completely different. I thought before we got onto the film, which is, uh, we'll be talking this week about Robbie Banfitch's The Outwaters, which I'm very excited to talk about with you. I thought before we get to that, I thought for our new listeners, because now that we are also an audio show and we are available as an audio podcast, we're seeing some new folks. I thought we might quickly catch them up on, uh, how the show came to be, uh, who the hell we are. And just a little bit about us, you know, we're, don't worry, we're, we're not going to go full two white guys with a podcast where we talk about the checkout line at the grocery store for half an hour, but we're just going to, you know, I, th- I thought we'd, we'd give them a refresher on who our two beautiful bald selves are. Right, right. Well, you know, I, it, it all started when I reached out to you a couple of years back, I, I, working on a book project. I, you know, for people who don't know me, I, my, for my day job, I'm a sociology professor and taken an interest in the paranormal in terms of particularly ghosts and found this really great podcast, Ghost Story Guys, and sent an email to one of the guys that was running it, a guy named Bren here. And it's like, hey, I'd love to, you know, ask you some questions. And uh, was you were very generous, generous with your time. We had a great conversation. We just kind of hit it off and just continue to have conversations, not only about the paranormal, but just, you know, talking shop about content creation. You know, I, I have a YouTube channel that I do, uh, you know, covering Arizona Cardinals NFL football and yeah, just built a friendship. And at some point we're like, Hey, let's, let's do a podcast together. And, you know, started out, uh, paranormal documentaries, but, uh, you know, I'll let you tell the rest of that, but it really kind of went in a different direction over time. Yeah. So uh, say the Coast story guys, I've been doing that for six years now and YouTube had always been an afterthought. It was just a place where we distributed mm-hmm. the finished shows with static images. And I just didn't think much about it because I I'm just, I, I just don't care for making video content myself. I don't mind being in video, you know, as making the show has really helped with that, but I just don't, I don't like dicking around with lighting, uh, you know, being a, a professional podcaster and perpetually poor. So I don't want to buy a bunch of shit. And you had some great success with Cardinal rule and you offered to help me turn around the ghost story guys, YouTube channel. Cause it was, again, it was fairly moribund. We had, you know, a not unreasonable amount of subscribers, but there was just no activity. They weren't, they weren't engaged. And one of the things that we came up with as a way to goose traffic was this show was weird together, which at the time, as you said, was going to be talking about paranormal documentaries. And so you can actually go watch those few original live streams. They're archived on our YouTube channel, which will be linked in the show notes. But the funny thing was, uh, most of those documentaries are horseshit. So <laughs> there wasn't a lot to talk about after a while. I mean, I think we, we got, got to, to the three good ones and then we had to move on, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we got to make jokes at Mickey Rourke's expense, which is always a good time. 
talking about right. uh, whatever that Jeremy Corbell documentary was called. Bob Lazar. Thank UFOs, you. And Area That's 51. the one. Yes. So we, anyway, so we, we, we pivoted to horror movies and I, I, eventually we ended up at independent, brand new independent horror. And we did that because, uh, one, I'm a giant fan of horror movies. I, I love horror movies, but I, I am weird in that I don't like paying tribute to old shit. And that's not to say I don't like old horror film movies. I'm, I'm a giant fan of lots of great stuff. They're fun. They, they, they're, I respect their place in, in horror history. And, and I think there's a lot to say about those, those films. But the last thing I wanted to do was do a show about Friday the 13th again, because everyone has done that show and has continues to do that show. You know, we're going to break down Friday the 13th. Jason goes to hell. Motherfucker. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> How much more is there left to say about this? And I think one of the biggest problems with entertainment right now, as we go forward, is we're spending too much time as a culture investing in the past. We just keep tilling that fucking ground over and over again. And we're not investing enough in the future, in people who are making stuff now. And there's stuff in the studio system that does really well, but I like paying attention to people who are not getting enough attention, people who are talented who are trying to make a name for themselves. I'm interested in things which are becoming. I have less interest in things which have become because usually by that point they get boring. So I suggested independent horror, but you didn't really have much of a background with this stuff, did you? No, not at all. In fact, it's interesting because in retrospect, I've enjoyed this much more than I thought I would in terms of as, as a topic, because you know, my, again, my interest was the paranormal. So it seemed like, okay, paranormal documentaries were going to be the thing I wanted to kind of look at. But unexpectedly, these independent horror films have actually really hit this really wonderful note for me because, you know, being a sociologist, I'm just a social observer. I like to see what's going on. I like to look at themes of what's going on in the world around us. And independent films in particular, I think there's something about the fact that, you know, you have these grassroots, DIY often, uh, low budget uh, directors who are doing everything themselves, often starring in or at least playing an ancillary role in the films. And there's just something about that immediacy and connection to everyday life that allows real life themes to, to just kind of be more present in these films, as opposed to a big Hollywood film that is written by, you know, some, some folks in a writer's room falling on very, you know, kind of cliche narrative tropes, or particularly a film that's from 20, 30 years ago, that's just from a different time. So something about these films from directors that are just closer to the dirt, closer to the earth, closer to the ground, closer to everyday life is really allowed for these really interesting themes that we get to explore in these conversations. So Really serendipitously, this has been really an interesting thing for me. I don't have any background in, you know, in horror films, only really what we've watched and things I've seen here and there. So in some ways, you know, an outsider might say, well, you know, I'm utterly unqualified <laughs> to discuss these films and, <laughs> and I would not disagree uh, at all. But at the same time, there, there's also this, this fresh perspective I think I'm able to bring as this, I like to think I I've occasionally have some decent insights on what's going on in the world. And I'm able to bring those without all that baggage, right? Uh, from yeah. being someone who's, you know, deeply steeped in, in the genre. So, and then you have much more familiarity with, with, with these types of films. So 
there's something ab- about that combination that I think makes for some, at least for us, some really interesting conversations. Hopefully folks listening enjoy them as well. But I know, you know, for me, it's really uh, been a really great experience. Oh, li- likewise. And, and again, I, I do think we bring a unique perspective in that you, again, being a sociologist, you, you often will come to me and say, well, you know, this is something I noticed in the film. And, and it's always something that, uh, you know, is completely escaped me or you'll have a, you'll have a perspective or a connection to academia or to that world that allows me to examine something in a different light. So no, it's, it's been great. And, and again, I'm, I'm excited that it's now, I mean, doing it the audio this way and the audio version, uh, obviously we still have the monthly live stream, but it makes it a little more manageable. And so we don't have mm-hmm. to prepare video elements and all that shit, which is, you know, time consuming. Again, I'm always happy with the final product, Fun. But, but it takes time. Yeah. And so, no, I, I, I have very much enjoyed this last year and I'm looking forward to this, this newest iteration of the show, my friend. Likewise. And I guess we should just get to it. On this episode, we are talking about the latest from director, or I guess really the first feature from director Robbie Banfitch. It is The Outwaters, what has been referred to as an experimental found footage horror film, which tells a story of four friends who go to the Mojave Desert to shoot a music video, and things don't go real well. Now, we're going to get into it, we're going to get into the specifics, but before you talk about any film, there's something you have to acknowledge. When you go into a movie theater, or when you sit down in front of your, in front of your television, you don't just watch one movie. You watch that movie along with every other movie you've watched, all the shitty stuff you've had happen that day, and that's why, before we talk about The Outwaters, we got to break down the baggage. Okay, Joseph, what, if any, was your baggage going into the Outwaters? So, um, you know, obviously you could tell pretty quickly that it's a found footage sort of, you know, uh, type of film. So obviously having seen Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity and some of the other films and, you know, uh, Something in the Dirt, which we talked about very recently, that is also from the same part of the country, Southwest, you know, LA area, uh, Southern California. Um, you know, so some of the thoughts and and perspectives on those films, that certainly was going to be part of the baggage watching this film. And also for me though, you know, being out in the desert for the film, you know, I'm originally from Arizona. So right. though it's set in Southern California, certainly I've spent my time in Southern California as well. So there's a little bit of homesickness as, oh, interesting. as I watched the whole thing. Yeah, it reminded me, you know, of the place that that I miss and that is dear to my heart that is a couple thousand miles away from where I currently sit. Fair enough. Uh, for me, really, the only baggage I had going into it was knowing that, it, yeah, it was found footage, which is a genre I enjoy, as I mentioned last episode when we talked about Mean Spirited, and that it had, again, it had been referred to as experimental. I don't think I would say it truly was experimental, and again, we'll talk about this when we, when we get into the Toctagon, but I, um, I, yeah, I'd heard a lot about it on Twitter that it was terrifying or whatever. Uh, and you can never, I try to see movies before the hype really sets in because you cannot help but be disappointed. You know, I, I saw the Blair Witch Project in 1999. I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. The hype, you know, was, was already even really pre-internet or early, early internet. Uh, the hype was already crazy and I was very disappointed and I, I've never cottoned to that film. So I wanted to see it before you know, the hype kind of set in and, and I don't know that I succeeded necessarily, but, um, 
that was some of the baggage. You know, it's it's the scariest thing ever. It's experimental. It's found footage. And I mean, after having seen Skinnamarink, which also these things were said about, I was apprehensive, we'll say, a little apprehensive. Again, even though I like found footage and I'm usually in the bag for it, I was a little apprehensive. Um, but as it turns out, for me at least, I didn't need to be. And we will break that down in the only place two men can. And that's Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph, this is the place. This is where the magic happens, where you and I metaphorically slug it out as we, uh, I don't know, uh, come to some kind of accord about how we felt regarding the film in question. This film, of course, Robbie Banfitch's The Outwaters. Why don't you get us started? You know, from a film craft perspective, there were some things I really liked about this film. Right off the bat, I think they really did a great job of establishing the characters with a show don't tell approach. Yes. You know, there wasn't, you know, exposition, you know, they, they, you know, had they open with the, the nine one one call. Right. And then a little bit of text to say, you know, establish that this is a found footage kind of situation. And then they get into some shots that seem very organic and natural and what you would expect from kind of a home footage vlog style. You know, they're just recording themselves getting ready for this trip out to the desert randomly shooting certain things that are a little little disjointed and aren't meant to create a very linear narrative, but definitely give you a feel for who these people are and, and what they're getting ready to do. And um, I, I think that is a, a particular strength amongst a few others of this film and what the director did in terms of how they established those characters. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Again, I, I think the strength of the film was in the characters. And that partially I, that comes from everyone being friends. The, the four cast members, actually, I guess five, including, uh, Ben Fitch's mother, who was actually played by his mother. Uh, they, they are all known to each other and, uh, indeed him and Ange, the woman who plays Ange, they have been friends for a very long time. They were friends from New Jersey, uh, back in the day. So they've been friends for more than 10 years and. They did some YouTube stuff uh, together a long time ago. They had a kind of a funny series actually where they played lazy ghost hunters and that is, <laughs> yeah, that's still on YouTube. If I remember, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but yeah, so you're right. There was a CZ camaraderie, uh, the fellow who plays his brother, Scott, you know, it's obviously it's not his brother, but he's a friend, but their energy is it, it, you, it takes nothing to believe that they are brothers. And so I, I would agree for, for me, something that really jumped out at me right away. And I guess this is technically an extension of the characters. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Joseph, and say that I liked this more than you did. Would that be, would that be a fair assumption? You know me pretty well there, yeah. Brent. <laughs> so something I really appreciate about the film is I felt like it started with such, I, I feel like it's, a, it starts with such an air of foreboding and also this very mournful air about it. And that was something that really, really struck me because as the film progresses, obviously the foreboding is borne out, but really the, the mourning is kind of borne out too. One of the themes I kind of felt that it may have been aiming towards, and, and I found I kind of interestingly, interestingly, and I mentioned this a little bit off air, I found Banfitch kind of evasive 
in the interviews I read and listened to with him, you know, and, and part of it was he didn't want to put, he didn't want to put his own interpretation of what happens in the film out there. He kind of wants people to speculate and he doesn't want to ruin their fun of trying to guess. But I, I also just, I, I don't know. I, I felt like the film is much deeper than he was willing to admit in interviews. I felt like the film, the characters again, have this, the sense of foreboding, the earthquakes that happened prior to them going out to the desert. But again, there, there's a lot of just sadness. The, 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 uh, him and his brother in the film have lost their father and his brother will not talk about it. Whenever he wants to talk about it, whenever he brings it up, his brother evades, his brother kind of tough guys it out. Never out and out says he doesn't want to talk about it, but he just, he just kind of stops. And the singer for the music video, Michelle, she is mourning her mother, who was also a singer. And that sort of informs her performance and informs her, her character. Everyone is just sad. When they start the film, they're sad. And they're trying to have this good time in spite of the fact that this cloud of collective mourning hangs over them. And again, I, I thought it was very well portrayed. And what, what interests me about that too is you see they're in mourning. You see that they're, again, having fun in spite of it. But again, almost in a way as an escape from it. Yeah. And then they get out to the desert and on their first night, they're jarred out of their tents by these really alarming booming sounds. And again, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but the impression that it made on me was like, we're all kind of helpless before nature. We're helpless before the loss of our family. You know, we're helpless before the natural world. And when you get down to it, when you put us out in a survival situation, we're really all just kids kind of scrambling in the dark. And, and there's a scene where Michelle, quite literally, when, when everything kind of goes wrong, she's calling for her mother. And it, I found it very upsetting. And that's, that's not uncommon. I mean, we've seen, you know, in recent, in recent years, a number of situations where there are videos of people being, you know, brutalized by police or brutalized by anyone. And one of the last things they do is they call for their mother. The film, I thought, really expressed through the characters this kind of vulnerability in, in the face of the larger world. And, uh, again, I, I don't know what, I assume that's intentional. Again, I think there's a lot more going on, uh, with Banfish generally than, than he's willing to admit. Uh, and, and again, I, I think that's part of it. I, I felt like it was a deeply sad film. Yeah. I, and I, those are some great points. And I, I had some similar, um, reactions to the film. Obviously, you know, they, they keep reminding her that she looks yes. like her mother and that she sings like her mother. And, and, and I think it was not, I think that was a good way to tell that story without, again, without tons of exposition about her mother, right? We don't know who her mother was, but the contextual clues from those reminders in an organic way give this feeling that that is a loss and a recent loss that, that she's mourning. Yeah. And really, I mean, how much do we know about our parents? I mean, most of us, I don't know that we necessarily ever get to know them beyond mom and dad, yes, especially when right. we lose someone early, you know, I mean, well, even my father, I mean, my father, my father passed last summer and he was an addict. We, we weren't close and I, I knew nothing about him, you know, all I know. And, and I was, to, I was right. always told you look just like your dad and it was not a compliment as it is in Michelle's case, mm. but that's all I know is I look like him. And yeah. you start to, you know, I, I've started to reckon, I started, I, over the years I've recognized in myself, some of the impulses that led him to make the decisions he did, I just did different things with him. 
but it's almost like that birth, that uh, birthright's maybe a bit of a grand word, but that is, it's like a blessing and a curse because it, it's almost like it's forcing you into something that you don't want to be, or it's putting you on a path that you don't necessarily want to walk. And you can choose to, you can choose to steer off it, but there's this sort of sense of, well, you, oh, you look just like your mom. It's beautiful. She was a singer. And, and right. I mean, obviously Michelle is a skilled singer, but at the same time, there, people can be good at something and not necessarily want to do that thing, you know, as a pursuit. But the, yeah, with the, the weight of years and the weight of tradition, you know, you, you maybe you end up becoming something you hadn't intended. Yeah. It's, it, we, we don't know who our parents were before we ruined their yeah. lives, right? You know, they had hopes and dreams before we, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to go too be- deep into this, but I mean, when you talked about your father, you know, my father is still alive, but we, we, we don't talk. That's a whole long story. But it's funny you talk about those sort of legacies or those, you know, whatever you want to call it, those residual things that we get from them. And for me, what it always was um, growing up, my father always talked about how he had enough college credits to get his associate's degree, but just never finished it, you know, never got all the transfer credits or whatever. And it left this, this kind of message of unfinished, right? That that he never finished it. And it was funny. I was like, when I, I started working on my bachelor's degree, I'm a first person in my family to, to get a degree. Um, and I was very deep into my, you know, close to finishing my degree. And I always had in the back of my head, this fear that I would just fuck it up, that I would s- stop taking classes and I would drop out and I wouldn't finish because that's what my dad right. never finished. And, you know, I, obviously I did and earned two, <laughs> two more college degrees along the way. But there's something about that 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 kind of rests on us, right? That that something about our our parents. So, just hearing you talk about your father kind of resonated, you know, kind of with my experience yeah. there. Yeah, again, that was something that just I connected with a lot of that stuff in the in the early part of the film, uh, and and that, some of that may just be me filling in the gaps right. uh, with my own sort of my own bias and experience. Well, isn't that what good art compels us to do, though? Right? Good art compels us that's to true. draw. Yeah, those that's things. very true. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, that was sort of my thinking around, around characterization. Uh, but now before we get into the more out there aspects of the film, was there anything else you wanted to add? You know, you mentioned something else with that, that vulnerability right. to nature. And that really, really stood out to me as well. When they woke, were awoken to those noises and they're standing outside their tent, I at that point didn't know what, what the peril was. Uh, it just maybe remind me of how you know dependent we humans are on on the things we build to protect us, right? You know, in the wild, you know, we lack the claws and teeth and brute strength to yeah. compete <laughs> with the the alpha predators, right? But we can build concrete walls and steel things and you know steel uh, structures and automobiles and all these things that protect us, right? But here they are with yeah. tents. <laughs> And very small flashlights. If I'm going camping, I'm bringing better flashlights, by the way, than what they had. And they're out there on their own in the desert, defenseless compared to what potentially might be out there. And obviously, you know, the lesson here, kids, is just don't go camping. That's always the lesson of the show. Right, always. So, yeah, no, but I had a very similar reaction in terms of that vulnerability when when we are out from behind the walls that we build. There was a a funny bit in one of the interviews that Banfitch gave where he talks about, there's a scene with bees and that was actually a thing that happened to them because he he was out filming with, Mm. with, um, Angela in the desert and how did he put it? So they were, they were pouring water over themselves because it was very hot 
and that attracted bees. And there were so many of them, they actually had to abandon the location until after dark when the bees go dormant. So that they just took off. They went to a car, they went and hit out at a Denny's and came back at night, moved the camp. But he figures that the bees must somehow have marked everything. So the next morning they'd found them again. Mm. And so they, they used a little bit of that wow. in the film. You know, one other thing I do want to mention uh, about the film before we get into some of the themes, I thought there were some really great shots in the film. There was a shot that they did at two different points in the film that just something about the visuals really, I thought were really, you know, beautiful. Um, about 36 minutes in where I, I believe it's the director who's kind of out there recording what it looks like coyote sounds with, he's just standing out there and it's like, like it's, it's dusk and the, the, you know, you see the silhouette of the hill and the shrubs and him and the, the sky is kind of purplish yes. behind him. And it, it, it just, it's just really a really great visual. Um, there were a few other shots like that, but you know, again, for shooting out, not on a set, you know, shooting out in the desert, they did a really great job of framing up some really interesting shots. Some of the stuff they did on the dry lake bed, um, again, you know, coming back to kind of the film craft, some of the things that really I thought were really nice. Oh yeah, done yeah. In this film. I, well, there's a couple things to that. Uh, one of the things is, and this kind of goes to what we'll talk about later. I very much think that was intentional. The the by what that by what I mean, pardon me, mm -hmm. what I mean by that being when we see Robbie up on the the hill, silhouetted against the setting sun, you know, recording sounds. Mm -hmm. We see that twice, and then. When everything right. goes bad and we see the figure holding the hatchet, he is framed the same way. And I believe that mm, is because, yeah. and I, well, I, we'll get to it. We'll get to it because the, the back half of the film gets pretty, pretty out there. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say yes. about, about the shooting is that, uh, Banfitch has said in interviews, he was inspired by Terrence Malick in his shooting and you can really see it. Are you familiar with, with Terrence, Terrence Malick's work? I'm not. No. Oh, wow. Okay. So I won't get into a bunch of it, uh, just because that's a whole other conversation. It's a whole other podcast, but he is a filmmaker whose work I also very much admire. His first film was Badlands with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek in, I want to say 1972 or three. And it's basically a fictionalized version of the Charles Starkweather story, but it has this almost pastoral beauty to it contrasting the the cruelty and, and the insanity of the story. And then his next film was Days of Heaven with Richard Gere. And it is incredible. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. And then he stopped making films. Hmm. He only made two films until 1998 and The Thin Red Line. Okay. And The Thin- I have heard of and that. The, yeah. And it's, it, again, an exceptional World War II film. It didn't get as much attention as Saving Private Ryan, which was released the same year. But it is where Saving Private Ryan is much more of a straightforward Hollywood film about war. The Thin Red Line is much more of a meditation on mm. violence and the true nature of man. And if, since then, he's become much more prolific. He has made a, a, a lot of films in the modern era. He, uh, there's Night of Cups to the Wonder, Tree of Life, A Hidden Life. Uh, I'm probably missing Song to Song, I think is the other one I was, I was missing. And... His, his, he's become much more, I think impressionistic is the word. Okay. His films have become much less straightforward narratives and much more 
they, they sort of use these collages of images and performances to give you a, a, a series of emotions more than they give you a story. So again, the inspirations very much, uh, very much come through. Although I think he does some really, like, I think the camera work does a lot of heavy lifting in the back half of the film and sort of showing you what is happening, which I guess is, you know, in a very malic way, it's showing you, it's telling you what's happening without actually telling you what's happening. And, and I have a feeling like there's probably a million, uh, you know, the outwaters explained videos popping right. up on YouTube right now, or if there aren't, they will be because it gets very, again, I don't know if impressionistic is the right word, but it gets very fragmented towards the, uh, in the back half. And you really have to make some leaps yourself. And I, I'm going to guess that's part of the film that, that, uh, that didn't work for you. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the, I actually didn't mind that. I, I mean, I, I think there was some interesting stuff, the way they framed the shots, you know, in sort of an obstructed or limited view. And I kind of made the joke about the flashlights they had not being very good, but I think that was probably partly an intentional choice to have that, you know, limited frame of view. And, you know, when, when you don't have a huge budget to work with, you know, tons of practical effects and CG, you have to kind of use things like that. And I will say they did a good job of suggesting what's happening with showing fragments of it. I, I'll just come out. The thing that didn't work for me is it, it felt like it dragged on way too long. They they, oh, okay. they just carried that out way too long. But I was like, what the hell's going on here? And I, and I, I wasn't really, I mean, if you, you could tell it felt like some sort of hallucinations going on, I will say, and you know, spoiler, all right. Anyone who's listening hasn't seen, it, I'm about to give a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you, all right. Um, the, the shot of the gas mask pulled it all together. I was like, okay, I get it now, right? Those, those booms, those were explosions, right? You know, of probably some experimental hallucinogens, the sign that this is government facility, that mask. Okay. So what we've been seeing that like, what the fuck was all that? That was hallucinations and that they're killing you. It all made, it pulled it together. I, I will give them credit. Like, you know, when, when a film has a moment like that for me where I'm con kind of confused but one piece pulls everything together i want to give credit for that right that's that's a night that was well done in my opinion but it did you know you know this the stuff before things went bad it did drag on a little bit but i i'll give i can i can let that go as far as that's character development you know since they were doing the show don't tell and not leaning on exposition i understand why we needed a prolonged period of just random shots of the people living their life to see who they were and to make it feel real. But there was a point where when things started going to shit for the people, it just felt like that drug on much longer than it needed to um, right. for me. And that was, that's, that was my, my critique. Uh, the other thing that maybe the other thing that maybe didn't work for me a ton was more just about my taste. Um, you know, the film's been described as transgressive. And I think the, particularly at the end that it really does hit that note at the end. And in a way, you know, I think it does do a good job of lulling you into not expecting that because him uh, cutting off a part of his anatomy, you know, that was certainly was a choice. <laughs> it was transgressive, certainly. <laughs> and then when he goes all brave heart on himself, those were shocking moments. And for certain audiences, that's going to work for them as just really, you know, doing something very different, very transgressive. And I, I see that it's just, that's not my thing. Right. So that didn't work for me so much. 
not because it wasn't effectively done. It was, it was effectively done more because <laughs> it's just not my thing. Right. I've read in interviews with him, he was asked what, you know, if, if there is a symbolic meaning to that. And again, we're, mm-hmm. we're having in spoiler territories here. He cuts off his own penis. Right. And drops it on the ground. And he said that if there, if there is any symbolism happening, it was unintentional. Uh, it just, he said it felt right. This seemed like something that, that he would do, that his character, that Robbie would do in, in this moment. Uh, I'm fascinated by the hallucination answer because that was not where I arrived at all. And okay. uh, now I, I, I'm sort of in my head, I'm like mentally going back and thinking, geez, what I'm, is any of the shit I'm thinking, does any of that hold up? And now, I really want to uh, hear what you came to, because to me, when I saw the gas mask, it was obvious. Oh, okay. The booms were, were exploding something from the government. Right. And the, right. And then the, the, all the, the, the hatchet and the wielding and everything that was them killing each other. And he was hallucinating being in his mother's apartment again. And everything was hallucinations, self-imposed self-mutilation, and they all killed themselves. So I really like that to me, that just seemed pretty straightforward. So I'd, I'd love to hear what you, what you came up with. So my read on it was, uh, th- there's a horror film called as above, so below it's mm-hmm. a found footage film. It's really, really good. Wasn't properly appreciated on initial release, but it, it is very good. And it's about a group of urbex explorers who find a way into the catacombs underneath Paris, but where they actually find themselves is somewhere very, very different. And I kind of had this take that they basically that they entered a sort of time loop that they kind of crossed over and that what we were seeing past a certain point, we were seeing him die. What I was sort of seeing was there's a point where they start passing through these mountain tunnels and immediately after they pass through the tunnels, there is a sense of going underground. Okay. There's, and then the, after the second tunnel, the next vision is the camera's upside down. And that's something that will be repeated in the back half of the film. And I took that to mean that this is sort of underworld imagery. Like they've sort of, they've passed through a point of no return. And then shortly after the camera being turned upside down, you're looking, there's a, a shot of a lake, of a very still lake. And the trees around the lake are reflected in the surface of the lake. So it looks like the lake has two sides, like like uh, like a, as as above, so below. And later, when he's making the pardon me at the beginning of the film, when we hear uh, Michelle making the call to nine one one, I was watching with the subtitles on. Robbie says something to the effect of, and I, I didn't get it verbatim, but he's he's telling her it's okay. This has already happened. This has already happened because I think what we saw was Robbie coming down from the mountain and attacking himself. Robbie goes mad essentially. And because he has been through this again and again and again. And I think that's why we see the 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 repeating shot of him collecting sounds on the mountain because when we see the man with the hatchet on the mountain, I think that's I think that's this other version of him that has kind of looped around. And now of course with the gas mask and the, you know the the government thing, that changes things. But that was sort of my initial take on it was that you know, like there's a moment where he's wandering through the woods and it's all, it's blackout. He's wandering through these trees and he keeps saying, who am I? Who am I? I'm, oh, and he's like slowly remembering his name, Robbie, Robbie Sigoric, Robbie Sigoric, right, I'm Robbie Sigoric. And 
that made me think of, of the dark wood of error in Dante's Inferno. And I believe that also, I believe that him wandering around, I think that also happens after we see him like floating in the water and he, mm-hmm. he pukes up a bunch of blood. And it made me think of, of the idea of the river, the river Leth or however you pronounce that, which makes you forget. Interesting. I'm going to throw something out there that problematizes my own theory. Okay. okay the the whole hallucination. Um, so, you know, obviously my take is probably a more literal and which is probably why it's wrong because <laughs> I'm not being artistic enough in my interpretation here, but um, it's a very literal read on what happens. But then, you know, as you describe some of these other takes on it and I think about it, okay, it's a, it's a found footage film, which means everything we're seeing is from the camera's perspective. Yes, not, the camera's an impartial observer. Right. Not the actual actors. Right. So there are some visuals in this film that are not, that are, that are not natural. And I, and what I mean by that is like when, when like the, 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 what looks like a mangled snake keeps being seen drug, right. Or something. And then there's a scene where those, whatever it is, the wraps around people's legs. Right. And, and, kind of there's a particular scene where I think they're in a tent in the tent and something, some tentacles or something, those, those, you know, uh, very bloody and, and, and morbid looking, uh, tentacles start wrapping around people's arms and legs. And that, while that's something you would fully rationalize as a hallucination, it's not something the camera would pick up. So that makes me second guess my own, uh, my own theory about that being straight up, you know, hallucinations because there's just some things that happen in there that the camera caught that would not align with that being what's happening. Yeah. And now the, the, I will say that the fact that it's found footage, unless I'm sure Banfish has an explanation. I mean, again, he, you know, he's, mm-hmm. I, I think he's a much smarter and, and deeper guy than he lets on in interviews. Um, not that he comes across as stupid in interviews at all, but he comes across as very guarded. Um, right. And there's more that he's not letting on. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, my, my theory also presents problems in that regard because, well, how would a camera see the other side Mm. unless it was a place you physically went? Uh, because there is a moment where, again, we see him peeling off his own, he he falls in the water. Actually, I believe it's after the dark wood of error, but he's, he's wandering in the dark and then he finds he's sort of floating in this red water. And he pukes it all. It, it's almost like like amniotic fluid. It's almost like a birth. He pukes up all this blood, and he's peeling. It's like he's peeling off a skin. Mm-hmm. And after that point, he then starts to see the past versions of himself and his friends, but he can't. They can't hear him. Right. And it's almost like, and, and it's from that point on that his field of vision starts to get narrower and narrower. And it made me think a little bit of Gaspar Noé's uh, or Noé, how you pronounce it the French filmmaker, his Enter the Void. And Enter the Void is a film where the protagonist in the opening minutes of the film, he's shot to death. And the rest of the film is from his perspective as his spirit, goddamn sirens, as his spirit moves through the world visiting his family members. And the longer he's dead, the less time he spends with each of them at each visit because the less connected he is to this world. And by the end of the film, he is reborn as a baby again. That's sort of what the headspace has put me into because after, again, after the attack, after he's alone, wandering on his own, 
asking, who am I? Who am I? He keeps seeing his friends in distress. He sees Ange and Michelle covered in blood and with the snakes. And it's almost like they're stuck in the moment of their death, unable or unwilling to cope with what this means, with their lives having ended. You know, they are as confused by their present state of death as they were, as they were struggling with the death of the people before them, of their parents. Right. And again, after, after the attack, a lot of the camera work is upside down. And again, I, I think that's an intentional choice, but I think the implication is, is that we're sort of, we're on another, we're on the other side. Interesting. It could also just be, he's letting the camera kind of fall to his side as he's walking around hallucinating. So, you know, I mean, it, it could, but I, I think that again, Banfitch has talked in, in, in interviews, how the camera, even though it looks casual, it was very intentional. Right, and right. so I don't think, I think the upside down, I think that's relevant. Again, Robbie Banfitch, if you're listening and I'm wrong, please tell me <laughs> uh, again. I liked, I really liked your movie. But I, again, I think he was trying to communicate something specific, specific there. And the other re- thing that occurred to me is there is a moment where almost it seems like he is moving. It's like he is being compelled. His The camera shows that he is floating above the dirt. Like he is oh, being that's right. conveyed. You see his feet being like Yeah, he's being like he's being conveyed somewhere by something. Right. And then, of course, he encounters the beast. And I was thinking that was almost like uh, like the biblical behemoth. The creature he sees in the dark, and and it just sounds like this great snuffling beast. We only ever see it in bits. But I was thinking of of like Leviathan and Behemoth, and I think Leviathan was a creature of the sea, and Behemoth was a creature of the land. And then after that, we see him being propelled through what appears to be a star field. And there is a point that he made in interviews. He said that all music in the film is diegetic, which means all music in the film is being heard by the characters. There's no score as such. And at one point during his star journey, you hear what's, what sounds like and is described on the subtitle track as a heavenly choir. Interesting. So my take was that he is being conducted. He is, he is moving through, but something stops him from getting all the way. Interesting. Okay. And he wakes, he wakes back up here and in the desert and he scourges himself and he mutilates himself. And the final shot is what is of him reaching up to the sky as we hear a jet pass overhead. And my thinking on that was when they first arrive to the desert, you hear a jet passing overhead. And I'm wondering if that's, if again, they enter the underworld through the tunnels, if that jet passing overhead, that's their jet. Hmm. That's them arriving and it's all already happening again. Interesting. Because, you know, one of the things he sees during his journey, his sort of, you know, post, we'll say his post, his post death visitation is he sees his brother on the plane through the window of the plane and he's trying to tell him, you know, stop, stop. And so, and, and also the, 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 his frame of view gets smaller and smaller. And that made me think of the, the enter the void thing where he has less attachment to the world and he's seeing, you know, he goes to his mother's house. He sees her grief for him. And, you know, who's to say that she doesn't see him in spirit somehow, but because he's dark, he's seeing like a, an, an alter version of the world. He's not seeing the world as we see it. He is seeing the world as the dead see it, which is one without life, without color and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that, that's that was, a deep take there. I'm telling you a lot of, <laughs> smoked a lot of great marijuana coming up with that one. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. 
uh, who's hallucinating, right? You know, you were them. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was my take on on the end. And folks, obviously, if you're still listening, uh, which I hope you are, uh, you know, I, I really recommend watching this one for yourselves because I, I think there's going to be as many interpretations as there are viewers. I mean, obviously, there are people who just say, oh, it's bullshit, you know, and, and they fuck those guys. It's, it's, I thought it was a, a, an interesting, challenging, surprisingly emotional film in places. And prior to recording tonight, I also watched Banfitch's college thesis film, White Light, which is streaming on YouTube. It's 56 minutes. And I got to tell you, man, watching that and then rewatching Outwaters, I could really see, like, there's a lot of raw talent there. Because White Light, uh, which uh, folks, I, again, I recommend you watch it. I'll, again, try and remember to link it in the show notes. It is a 56-minute short about what barely is short. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a brief, it's a brief feature. There but it's, it's about a woman who essentially who's dealing with what she believes is alien abduction. It's based on the work of, of researcher Bud Hopkins. And there are some brilliant fucking camera moves in there. There's really like moody, assured, uh, suspenseful camera movements. There's some jumps, some effective jump scares. Like he's got almost like a David Lynch thing going on. There's there's some stuff he does in White Light that has this sort of overlapping. It's, it's a way of expressing overlapping realities that I've seen David Lynch do in Twin Peaks uh, season three. So, I, you know, and this is 15 years ago. He made this 16 years ago. So there is, there is a lot of raw talent there. And, uh, again, I, I'm very eager to see, um, to see him make a more straightforward narrative. Um, and, and he does have, he's got two films on the way. He's got, uh, Tinsman Road, which is another found footage film, which is coming out or is at least being released at a festival, uh, this month sometime. It's not gonna be anywhere near where I am, but yeah, that's being released at a festival. And then he's got another one called Ex Valis which he is, it's finished save for a score. So he's, he's been busy and I'm, I'm curious to see what else is, is down the road for Robbie Banfitch. Uh, but I kind of, I let that get away from me, Joseph. Did you have any other points? No, I think we hit on everything. Um, you know, and like I said, I think some of the things you've identified that are really fascinating. And, you know, and I mentioned this before, but you know, the, that's the thing about art. Like I, I have to wonder if, if the, you know, if the director just like, Hey, I'm going to throw a lot of things out there and let's see what people come up with. But there's ah. something really just, you know, invigorating about looking at, at something like this and trying to figure that out. Right. So even if, if neither of our interpretations are what's intended or if, if or if they miss the mark, um, it's still, you know, this is the, this is one of the things that's great about this type of, of art and film is, is watch it and try to come up with what you think it is. It's, 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 it's an invigorating exercise to do that. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And again, folks, this is, I rented, or probably I bought this on Google play. I know it is going to be streaming. Did you watch it on Screenbox, Joseph? I got it on Google play as well. Okay. So I, it is going to be exclusive to Screenbox as far as streaming goes, as I recall. I don't think we have Screenbox here in Canada. I don't know. Um, but uh, either way, as we always say with independent films, please do not pirate. Pay the money. Rent the film. Every dollar you spend on independent film is a vote for more independent films. If you got a pirate shit, which again, we don't recommend, do it with stuff like Marvel where they're making enough money as it is. It's not going to hurt them. But independent films, vote with your dollars. Support these artists. They deserve it. The Outwaters absolutely deserves your money. Again, no matter how no matter how you feel about it in the end, 
there is there is a lot to like about this movie. And again, I I bought it because I always have to watch movies multiple times for the show, and I have a feeling like I'll probably revisit it. All right, my friend. Any final thoughts? No, just as always, it's good talking shop with you, and uh, you know, uh, getting to hang out. Absolutely. And folks, if you want to find us on the web, we just picked up weirdtogetherpod.com. Currently, that just goes to our Red Circle landing page, but we are in the process of putting together a website. And if you have any comments or questions, you can email us at weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. Some other bastard had Weird Together Pod. Damn it. uh, Yes, I know, right? We'll get them. I mean, we could have had weirdtogether.com. It was available, but some motherfucker was reselling it for $2,600. Yeah, and no. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's that's not happening. But again, you can find us at weirdtogetherpod.com. And if you want to get in touch, which we would love you to do, we'll read your emails on the next show unless your email says, hey, you suck. Uh, hell, actually, we might actually do that one just for lulls. What the hell? <laughs> right. But either way, that's weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. Joseph, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13. You can find me on the YouTubes at The Cardinal Rule if you're into Arizona Cardinals football. Uh, and obviously uh, on YouTube at Weird Together. I am on Twitter and Instagram as Largely the Truth. My main show, The Ghost Story Guys, is on podcast platforms everywhere. You can also find my other shows, Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. That's my talk show. Book of the Dead, which is a short form storytelling show. And Transmissions from the Void, which is horror audio dramas. And you can find those everywhere. Find podcasts, live or at ghoststoryguys.com. Music for this show is provided by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based artist Elliot Wilder. You can find them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. That's Revenants and the number one.bandcamp.com. Or streaming everywhere you get your music, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. And that is the Ghost Story Guys house label. Our main theme is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige. That's again by The Revenants. Until next time, folks, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Thanks for joining us. Let me rest.